Podcast New York. People engage to stop a jewel in decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Who popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy. Because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week I will be representing December of 1982 alongside these other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, trucking back to the 70s, say hello to Man Crush. What's up? Yes, I have December of 1978. And let me tell you, this is a joy to have one of our own on the show. It's so it's awesome to have celebrities on all the time, but we just bullshitted for an hour before we even started. So I definitely enjoy when our boys are on the show. Also joining us on the panel this week, please welcome back to the 90s, Drew Zachman. What's up, everybody? I have December of 1990, and I got to be honest, this was probably... Uh, one of the more nostalgic uh, bits of research I've done. There's a lot of good picks, a lot of fun picks, so I'm pretty stoked. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So he's back, ladies. The man's so tough, he was named after two completely different wrestlers. All rise for Judge Don't Call Him Doctor, Dave Schultz. Hello, hello, hello. Happy holidays, gentlemen. I hope everybody, including your listeners, are having a good one. I currently have tinsel on my tatas, and I am knuckle deep in Burl Ives. <laughs> I like how you specified knuckle deep. That's yeah, well, Burl's a, he's a hefty fella. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, TV, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we shall go to a final Wild card round. All right, duelers, it's December, so don't scream about it. Don't think aloud. Turn your head now, baby. Just spit me out, because it's time to play more. Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right down to Dave Schultz for the coin toss. Can we call him Dr. David Schultz? I like that. You, you like that, yeah. I'm uh, not certified in anything, but I guess I'll take the title of Doctor, the Love Doctor. Uh, I should have brought something seasonal. I did not. I have brought yet again my trusty clamshell copy of Flipper. Yes. Oh, here we go. Fucking Flipper. Yep. I got Flipper right here. Um, if any of your Shirtless listeners- Paul Hogan. Yes, remember Paul from Hogan. before, we got Paul Hogan and Elijah Wood, and he's got the sunglasses half down like he's some cool boy band kind of cat here. And on the back, Elijah is playing with his tuna- and <laughs> Paul Hogan is taking a shower, which I always like to bring up somewhere on this case as well. So the, the boy band side is the front, and then playing with his tuna is the back. So who's going to call it? What do you want? All right, Drew Zachman, you call it this week. 
Yeah, I'll call it. I want to take the tuna. Take the tuna? Let's see what you get. Give me that tuna, buddy. And guess what? You have opened a can of tuna, my friend. Hell yeah. All right, Drew Zachman, you won the coin toss, and you get to select our first category. Where are we going? Oh, that is a fair question. So I'm going to go with, uh, let's see here. I'm going to go with TV. I remember this show greatly. So on December 13th, 1990, I feel like Man Crush has talked about this before, but uh, what I am talking about on December 13th, 1990 was the last episode of Remote Control. Now, that show was glorious. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it too, too much because I feel like uh, Man Crush did talk about that a bit before a couple, probably a couple months ago now. But I mean, the show was amazing. Uh, I love watching that. A lot of great people on there. This is also MTV's first original non-musical program and first game show. And I'll tell you what, that set the bar pretty high for anything to follow it. Uh, Basically, very quick summary here. It would have three contestants answer trivia on movies, music, TV. Ken Ober was the host. I love Ken Ober. I adore that man. May he rest in peace. Uh, Such a great personality. You also had Colin Quinn on there. Carrie Wurr. She was fantastic. Uh, Adam Sandler got his start there. Dennis Leary was on there. So a lot of good talent coming on that show. And honestly, I would love if they brought that back. Uh, I haven't really given too much thought to who I would like to see host it. But uh, if they did bring it back, I would definitely watch it. So the end of Remote Control. What music videos would you watch? Stuff from the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point i guess it would have to be a throwback show at this it would just point. be it would just be a bunch it'd be like, like it'd be like a bunch of like people like me on there a bunch of like 40 year old <laughs> trying schmucks. to remember what shit is oh i can i can uh, remember that stuff uh which is weird but uh i feel like that w- i would love it i would love to sit on one of those recliners and you know shoot my shot barca loungers yeah, that, i had that when chris Barron was on and he that's shit right. on it and said he never <laughs> heard of it Thanks, Chris. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the television round? All right, so I got December 7th, 1978, and December 1978 was not good for television. So I figured, why not? Let's just put the the downer stamp on this one. Uh, This pretty much sums up television for December of 1978. But this is pretty historical, uh, but not in a good way. All right, so we'll go to uh, Suitland, Maryland, where millions of feet of old newsreel uh, went up in smoke on Thursday in a fire at the National Archives warehouse in a Washington suburb. An archives spokesperson said 18 to 20 million feet of uh, 1929 to 1951 newsreel outtakes were destroyed. There were 26 million feet of film at the archive, uh, which were made of highly flammable cellulose nitrate. Uh, It was stored at this warehouse Uh, of the 27 film vaults. Only seven were saved. Thankfully, there was no injuries that were reported. However, these Universal Studio newsreels were lost forever and destroyed in that fire were clips from the Great Depression. There were Babe Ruth home runs, battles from World War II, the attack on Pearl Harbor. There were presidential speeches on there. Lots of historical events from that period. And all these clips... They were actually used or they actually used these back then because there were there was no national television news at the time. So people would see their news if, say, they went to a movie theater or whatever, like we go to a movie theater. Well, no, we don't go to a movie theater now in 2020. But in 2019, if we ever went to the movie theater, like before the movie would start, 
you know, we'd see ads now. Well, back then they would actually show these news clips because that's how people got their news. There was no news aside from newspapers, especially in video. And now all of these are gone and all that was lost to history forever on December 7th, 1978. Bringing it hard with the 70s. <laughs> Dark side. All right, so for my television selection, we are going to go over to December 27th, 1982, and a new game show debuting on television called Starcade. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this one. Really cool show. Uh, basically what it was, it was an arcade game show. You had two contestants, and they would go head-to-head with trivia questions and then test their gaming knowledge playing upright arcade cabinets. So contestants were given a list of 10 games, and they had to practice those 10 games before they were coming on the show. On the show, there would be five games. So you got a 50-50 chance. And then you got a 50-50 chance because when you're actually playing it, you're matched up with one other player, and then all the questions that they ask you are 50-50 answers. So, for example, in the first episode, one of the questions was, in the game Asteroids, are you controlling a triangular spaceship? Or a uh, flying saucer. Sounds pretty difficult. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> this television show was actually conceived by Ted Turner and unfortunately left the air in 1984 when the video game market collapsed. So and if you go check out the first episode, you had John Cantu versus Heidi Starfeld. Uh, John Cantu was probably about 35 years old, facing off against Heidi, who was all of nine years old. And she <laughs> whoops his ass. That's awesome. So that's what I got for my television round, Starcade, debuting in December of 1982. So we all brought something with a shelf life. I love it. Yes. Yep. Very limited shelf life. <laughs> all right, so let's go down to Judge Dave Schultz for the ruling on the television round. Well, you guys certainly brought some uh, gems here, didn't you? Let me tell you, some, <laughs> some shows that are really just etched into the memory, the consciousness of all mankind. 1990, the last episode of Remote Control. Uh, I was never a fan of that show. I'm glad Drew has a lot of nostalgic feelings about it. I do. To me, the set was kind of like sitting in a crappy pizza parlor, but with better chairs. 1978, the, all that. You know what, Man Crush? I'm amazed by the amount of footage, and I don't mean by the actual what's on the film itself, but you you actually described how many feet got yeah, destroyed. That's absurd. As if that mattered to me at all, because I don't even know how much feet is in a roll of film. I couldn't tell a lot, if it was, apparently. I, I couldn't tell if it was one or thirty or three hundred. I have no idea. But history, we all know nobody needs that crap anyway. Uh nineteen eighty two, Starcade. I've never seen that. But I love the odds of that show. I love it being fifty fifty. That means like a Joe Schmo like me could actually win something. It's such a weird concept for a show, like you have adults matched up with kids. Now, they said they matched them up based upon their gaming abilities, which, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't speak so well for the adults, I guess. Uh, yeah. From what you just told us, uh, a middle-aged man probably lost to a, a virtually a toddler. <laughs> so that kind of negates the whole 50-50 odds I like so much, because that's one of the reasons why I don't online game now. I don't want to be embarrassed by a child. Or being told like, come on, you old pussy. Yeah, yeah, go fuck your grandma. I'm like, dude, my grandma died 25 years ago. And now you can have all that enjoyment in front of a live studio audience. Yeah. I got a 401k, you little snot. Handle that. I can drink beer, you little shit. Right. I can eat cookies whenever I want. Now, yeah, so I don't know, man. 
we got two game shows up against each other and uh, TV, but it's also based in some, you know, tragic history. So I'm just going to make my verdict here on something uh, that I'd actually want to watch. So that takes Man Crush right out of the running. Sorry. But um, I'm going to take Mac with the debut of Starcade in 1982 because uh, I think that would be a very interesting show. And even at that point in time, I think it's something I would have watched as a kid. All right. Mark's like, fuck, I didn't know I'd be here. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) He had that look on his face like, oh, okay. All right. So I pick up a point in the first round. And more importantly, I take control of the board. Uh, You know what, gentlemen? Let's go over to the news round. All right, so we're going to go over to the Charlotte Observer, December 4th, 1982, and where the headline reads, Artificial Heart Patient, Doing Well, Doctors Say. Out of Salt Lake City, Barney Clark was feeling a little pain after receiving the world's first permanent mechanical heart. He shook hands with a visitor on Friday, nodded to the nurses, traced some words on their hands. Doctors go on to say that Mr. Clark was doing pretty well, despite having the world's first artificial heart. Uh, Very pleased with the success of the surgery. Unfortunately, uh, Mr. Clark only lived 112 days, but the achievement is monumental. Of course, Dr. Robert Jarvik uh, designed the first artificial heart, and Oddly enough, right next to that article, there is an art, another article about Dr. Robert Jarvik, and it talks about how he was actually rejected from several medical schools. Uh, he's mo- He was more of a creative person in the medical field, and they didn't really think that he'd make a good doctor, I guess. So he uh, applied to a bunch of different medical schools, was all turned down, eventually went to the University of Utah, where he designed the world's first mechanical heart. Same guy that came up with Edward Scissorhands. Yes, it was. That was in his later years, though. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Drew. Did I spoil your pick? (laughs) What the hell? All right, Drew Zachman, what do you have for the news round? All right. So my news takes us to December 20th of 1990. Uh, We are given the very first website uh, by Tim Berners-Lee. Now, the initial page was not public when it went live. That actually didn't happen until August of 1991. And the page that he built wasn't much more than an explanation of how the hypertext-based project worked. But still, like this event obviously laid the groundwork for much of the internet as it exists today. Uh, and he wrote it for CERN, C-E-R-N, which is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. That's what it's all for. And yeah, I mean, I, I remember dialing into our local web provider NERC. I don't know if anybody's from Princeton, New Jersey that listens to your show, but that's where it was from. So like basically we had access to like all these college libraries and some very pixelated boobs. And uh not long after that, you know, we get Netscape Navigator. Uh I remember building my first website on GeoCities and then Angel Fire. Turns out that didn't impress the ladies at my high school when I told them I knew HTML and had a couple of websites which were basically just pictures of bands I liked and video games I liked to play at that time. But um, anyway, yeah, Tim Berners-Lee, December 20th, 1990, builds the first website. That's what I got for mine. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the news round? Man, uh, I went with something huge here. Uh, let's go December 12th. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Man Crush. Is the first website not big enough for you? No, no, <laughs> I'm going bigger. Let's go uh, December 12th, 1978. But first, I have a bone to pick, all right? So, of course, I'm back in the 70s again. 
uh, and even though the the decade's winding down, it's 1978, it's still filled with lots of dark shit, as you could tell from my first TV story. And so, honestly, like, I don't know what Jim Meskimen was talking about last month when he painted <laughs> the 70s as all sunshine and rainbows. Maybe he grew up, like, away from civilization or something, because every damn page of these newspapers are damning in the 70s. Just, I'll give you a quick example. Just a random newspaper that I grabbed, same same day as this story. So December 12th, 1978. I'm not cherry picking here. There's just a random newspaper from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Here are the headlines from the front page of this paper. This is how good the 70s were, okay? First story. Seven daring, heavily armed New York bandits escape with $5 million from JFK Airport. That's the first one. Then we got 72-year-old Lilith's woman dies in crash. Uh, the third story, 15 flee three houses as gas line is broken. And then finish that one off with tens of thousands mourn Golda Meir, which is she was the former uh, Israeli prime minister in the 70s. So that's all it is. There's never good stories, right? So I don't know what Jim Meskimen was talking about. I just had to bring that up because, of course, we're not going to really fight with the celebrities when they're on. But now that he's not on, you're wrong, dude. I think he thinks the 70s were better because L. Ron Hubbard was alive then. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, deep cut. All right, so uh, that's all random. That that was all random samples from the same date. And it's like this all through the 70s. So sorry, Jim, your statement was incorrect. All right, so the 70s were just a shit show. Uh, Anyways, here's one of those stories, all right? But this one's got a twist to it. This is a story of Mr. James Shelton. And let me give you a little background on Shelton. In 1976, Shelton was found guilty of larceny. He was working at a department store at the camera counter, and James would routinely have these quote-unquote instant sales where he would slash prices like a butcher for the ladies if they tickled his fancy. And everybody knows this. Like, we all grew up at one point. We were young. And, you know, you give people your discount or whatever you did. I don't want to go too deep on that one, but I'm sure people did that. But once this department store found this out and they realized that the books weren't balancing, they caught Shelton in the act. He was eventually sent to jail on a larceny rap. So off to Davenport, Iowa Correctional Facility, he went on a one-year sentence. Halfway through his stint, they sent Shelton to a halfway house to finish out the rest of his term. He had roughly six months left. Well, this is coming from Shelton. He cited a poor heating system at the halfway house. So Shelton just split town and headed for Hollywood. So when when he left, he literally had two months left on his sentence. So off he went to Hollywood. He's on the run from the law. So what did James do? James joins the entertainment union and he gets an agent. And then he started to audition for TV shows. Living the American dream, baby. So just so it happens, James, yeah, he's a good-looking 26-year-old guy. He got himself onto not one, but two television shows, the first of which, The Dating Game, which they've done this before. There was a serial killer on The Dating Game, so why not have another felon? Uh, James, he was the third contestant on the show. Uh, the other two guys, one was a newsman and a probation officer. I mean, how can that happen, <laughs> right? Uh, now, he didn't win a date. Uh, But he did win a one-way ticket back to Davenport because uh, one of the former employees of the correctional facility that he left, the guy had quit, I guess, but he was watching TV at home, saw James Shelton on this show, ratted him out. 
And now while he was out in Hollywood, he also recorded an episode of the gong show. Now he didn't win that one either, but at least he didn't get gonged. And his plan was this. He was going to be on these shows. He's going to wait till after both shows aired. And then uh, he was going to turn himself in early. Uh, but that didn't happen. And he got sent back. Now, I figured I'm reading these stories. I was like, dude, there's no way somebody leaves jail halfway house. Doesn't matter. The judge is going to like toss the book at this dude. But instead, they just let him finish out the rest of his original sentence <laughs> when they got back. Instead of sending him to, I guess the other option was to send him to a maximum security prison. And the judge was like, nah, seems like he did all right when he was out on his own. So we'll just let him finish up. Uh, sadly, I could not find a follow-up story. I seriously, I spent the most time on this story. I dug for the next like two or three years looking for his name and the locations where he was. I couldn't find shit. And I really wish I could because before his arraignment, before he went back to jail, and I quote, this is what he said. He said, once I get out of the correctional program and get a job, I hope this whole thing will be a huge plus for my career. And I plan to write a comedy script all about it. But sadly, I could not find one. But it's the story of James Shelton, people. Wow. <laughs> he probably changed his name. That's why you can't find him. That's he what does I'm look kind of familiar. I'll, uh, I'll send you guys the picture later. Of course, they're black and white, right. so it's kind of hard to see detail in their faces. But he looks kind of familiar. But I don't think I see him really. All right, let's toss it down to Judge Dave Schultz for the ruling on the news round. Okie dokie, Smokey. Man Crush was just bitching about headlines in the 70s being so dark and terrible. But can you imagine seeing the headline from 1982, Mad Scientist Kills a Dentist? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been something else because, you know, according to Mark's story, that's essentially what happened. Uh, James Shelton, though, speaking of the 70s, it's pretty amazing that his game show career started basically because he was chilly. You know, that's yeah, <laughs> that's, that's it. He's like, fuck this shit. <laughs> fuck this place. I'm going to Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. It's too cold here. Where can I go? That might be a little bit warmer. Hollywood. When I'm there, what else is the natural progression but to be on the dating game? So that is quite amazing. And the gong show. And the gong show, but I can only assume that he got such a lenient sentence. The man was white. Um, no, he was not. He wasn't? Oh, wow. He wasn't. I'm going to send you guys a picture, but go ahead. Okay, that's amazing. That's even more amazing now. So uh, 1990, the first website, even though it didn't go live for until 1991, I, owed a, I owe a debt of gratitude to this guy because without him, I probably would never be able to buy tube socks off of Amazon Prime. So... You know, hat off to that guy or socks off to that guy. And then in 1982, as I just referenced earlier, that story is kind of wild, too, because uh, he only lived 112 days. I wonder how long he would have lived without that surgery. Maybe a little bit longer. No, he was in dire shape. They had vetted him and they had tried actually every possible option at that point. And they knew he was going to die. So they give him a sheep's heart. No, it was a fully mechanical heart. He was hooked up to a machine. Well, then they didn't try everything. The machine actually had to hold <laughs> 400 PSI at all times in his heart. Wow. He was freaking yeah. RoboCop. This is pretty wild. <laughs> he could crush the shit out of your hand. Yeah, and they vetted him more than they did James Shelton, obviously. <laughs> and if anything seals the deal, he came out of surgery and saw his wife. And the first thing he said to her was, even though I don't have a heart anymore, I still love you. 
Oh, wow. That's badass right there, man. If only he died on a floating door in the middle of the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Never let go. I'm telling you. Um, Now, Drew, just for extra points to kind of help you here, is your GeoCities website still live? Can we go look at the video games and bands that you used to like back in the... uh, No? No, no. No GeoCities, no Angel Fire. I had like numerous websites over the years but you know what website is live songsgonewrong.com Ooh, nice plug but yeah it's not uh but no geocities that webpage was pretty sweet though i <laughs> i mean guys i can't deny i'm i'm pretty amazed and i want i want man crush to send me the information this james shelton story i, is I sent outrageous. you guys the picture did you get oh, it oh i haven't take, looked take yet, a look but... at that if you're on messenger i sent it to your messenger just look how nonchalant this dude looks <laughs> it's like he's like yeah fuck <laughs> it that's awesome holy cow this guy is awesome. Wait, 26. He looks like he is like 43. All right. Well, he might have been lying to get on the shows. <laughs> He's like a Dominican baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> this is a guy I just want to chill and have a beer with. We got to find him. Absolutely. I think this should be Dude, the Dude, I tried. I seriously, like when I find stories like that, like the kid that uh, flew out the window and landed and yeah. lived that I had a couple, like last month or whatever, I dig for those to see if I could find a follow-up. But the newspapers, what I've noticed- they just like never follow stories up. They just they do it for like a week or two, and then the story's dead. They never go back. Well, so it'd be great, man, crush, if you could find his address because this slick motherfucker just won you the round. Ooh, <laughs> I want to get him as a judge. That would be fucking fantastic. That would be amazing. All right, man, crush, you pick up a point, tie up the game, and we're we're heading into our final one point round. What category oh, are we going with next? Let's go to hot products. I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket with music and movies. Let's go to hot products. The one point round. Let's go to December 15th, 1978. Uh, So I I know you guys know, but so I don't know if the people that listen know, but you might've seen the pictures that we've taken on our Instagram, but at our studio at podcast, New York, we have our room broken up into two sides. There's a beautiful, professional studio side full green screen painted walls cameras lights 60 inch monitors all that fun stuff then the other side we have what we call the living room or i call the grandma side so if you've seen those pictures on social media we got these lush comfortable 70s recliners from grandma's house they're in great shape by the way they don't smell like mothballs either we have grandma's coffee tables albeit uh they have mics and monitor stands drilled into them, but don't worry, we have coasters. Um, but then we also have Grandma's TV set. It's a sweet 1989 console RCA TV. And on top of that, we've put together a plethora of just about every physical media player you can think of. We got Betamax, VCR, a VHS rewinder, a Gerald cable box, an RCA disc, a Mini 8, a Laser disc. We even have a Sega Genesis, an NES, TurboGrafx 16. It pretty much spans the 80s and 90s that uh, Mike Ranger and myself, like all of these products that we grew up with. It's really cool, but we're lacking this particular product right here. So on December 15th, 1978, Magnavox and MCA, basically MCA was like the movie arm to this. They did a test market release for the video disc. And technically, you could say our laser dick, our laser dick, our laser disc <laughs> player is the grandchild of this bad boy right here. This system, it would sell MSRP of $695 in 1978, 
It's about $3,000 in 2020. I know Dave likes when I do that. But uh, this uh, this optical video disc player will attach to your home television and basically works just like a record player. Unlike an RCA disc, though, it doesn't come in a sleeve. But unlike a laser disc that we know from the 90s, it pop, you pop the top open and you put the disc on top of it like a record player. And then the lasers do the rest. So this was your first reflective optical video disc player. Well, what the fuck is that, right? Well, that's the Magnavision 8000 Disco Vision, which is so 1978. I had to bring that up. But it's basically the first ever laser disc player to be released to the general public. And this was the pinnacle of home AV equipment. Uh, you know, as we all know, laser discs far superior to the, in quality to a VHS or Betamax. And then laser discs, DVDs, Blu-ray. This shit got legs, Dave. I know you like that. <laughs> Take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Disco vision. That's crazy how expensive some of those, you know, systems were back then, right? You have that Disco vision. I remember like VHS um, players. Those things were crazy expensive when they first came out. So for sure, we did. We interesting. Didn't even, we've talked about this on the show before. Like my family didn't even get one for years. We had that RCA disc player because they were much cheaper. But even if you look at that price, I think those were going for like two ninety nine on sale, three ninety nine. That's still a yeah. huge chunk. And I'm sure my dad probably got it from somebody else, and we got a bunch of used movies. Once people bought uh, VCRs, this one dude that he worked with just gave him like all these fucking movies. So that's what I grew up on was those RCA discs. But this thing, this was like good quality. It was just, yeah, like you said, very expensive. Yeah, we had a we had a VHS player, and I, I mean that thing would break relatively often. And like now, like if things break, it's like whatever. I'll just get a new one. You know, I mean we we try to fix things, but but back then, like my dad would always like bring it to work because like he was an engineer, so he'd bring it to, to work. And these other guys would be like, oh, I can fix that for you. He always like would know somebody who could fix <laughs> something in, in in different areas, right? And VHS, he knew a guy, and anytime it would break, this guy would fix it. And like a, like a week later, he'd come back, and there it is, good as new. That was so. all a ruse, Drew. That was just so your dad could watch porn. That's right. He's like, oh, damn, thing's broken again. Got to bring it to work. Oh, <laughs> uh, the tape got stuck. Fucking piece of crap. Instead of buying a new one, I'm going to go fix it. What the hell? It's the 80s. Oh, what do we got here? Broke one of my two heads. <laughs> Broke my laser dick. <laughs> you like that. Well, it might not be your dad's old porn, but what do you have for the hot products round, Drew? I'll tell you what I have, Mr. Mark. I have this one is very near and dear to my heart. December 14th, 1990. A video game is released as shareware as the first major platformer on a PC. Now, growing up, we never while we while we did have VHS, we never had video game systems in the house. You know, we we had a Commodore 64. Uh, like we had that in the 80s and then, you know, in the early 90s, we moved on to PC as like a 286, 486. So this product that was released on December 14th, 1990, for me, this was actually my Super Mario Brothers. Now, the game features a Green Bay Packers helmet wearing eight-year-old. And while this eight-year-old is not Kevin McAllister, that sociopath, uh, this eight-year-old is Billy Blaze. And this game is his adventure as he defends Earth and the galaxy from alien threats with his homemade spaceship, ray gun, and most importantly of all, his pogo stick. 
Now, you guys might not recognize him by his name. Billy Blaze, if, if you know, you know, but uh, perhaps the name Commander Keen might come to mind. Now, uh, yeah, Commander Keen in the Invasion of the Vorticons. It's a side-scrolling platformer, which is probably one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, I cannot tell you how many hours I spent playing this game. And if that wasn't enough, I actually have been, I think I started on it back in um, in March when the pandemic kind of first started. But I started building this retro video game console on an Android TV box. And I just recently, this past week, figured out how to run MS-DOS on that. So, of course, the first game I downloaded uh, the, the, the ROM for was Commander Keen. And I gotta say, it still is freaking amazing. Now... The plot of the invasion of the Vorticons follows Keen as he retrieves the stolen parts of his spaceship from the cities of Mars, prevents a recently arrived alien mothership from destroying landmarks on Earth, and hunts down the leader of the aliens, the Grand Intellect, on the alien home planet. Now, Commander Keen was also a massive success as the team founded ID Software and produced another four episodes of Commander Keen, which I played all of them. Uh, reviewers love the games. And ID Software actually went on to develop other games such as Wolfenstein 3D and Doom. And I think they also did Quake, if I'm not mistaken. But the Wolfenstein 3D, that first-person engine, if I'm not mistaken, was also the same exact engine that was used in an Apogee game called Blakestone, which is basically Wolfenstein 3D in space, but it's still freaking amazing. Uh, also, Spear of Destiny, it's, also, it's just Wolfenstein 3D, but I love them all equally. But yeah, so I have Commander Keen. December 14th, 1990. Man, you had me at shareware. <laughs> <laughs> that brings back memories. Hell yeah. I ain't paying for this shit. All right, so for Hot Products, Drew, I actually also have a video game, and this was a video game I had growing up, and you guys probably all had this too. You know, th Now, this game has been cited as one of the most important video games ever created. It's also one of the earliest video games based on a movie. You know, this game's television commercial famously actually featured a former dueling decades judge on the list of top 15 video game sales in December of 1982 and was one of the hottest sellers for Atari that Christmas. Unfortunately, twice as many copies were sent back to the manufacturer and this game would go on to uh, be credited as one of the main causes of the video game industry collapse of 1983, which unfortunately took off the air my pick for the television round. And, you know, what can you expect when the game's designer, Howard Scott Warsaw, he only took five weeks to create the game because that's all I gave him because he had to get it on the shelves in time for Christmas. So released in December of 1982, I give you E.T. for Atari. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, what a dumpster it, wasn't that fire. like, wasn't that like, like literally wasn't that dumped in like a dumpster in yeah. like fucking Arizona or something like that? There's a whole documentary yeah, where yeah. they like go and dig them up and shit or find them. And em. they thought this game was going to be huge. Uh, we're going to go over to the San Francisco Examiner, December 6th, 1982. And this little blurb talking about all the new games and toys coming out for Christmas under video games. It says, by now, you've been seeing commercials for the newest Atari game cartridge, E.T., the Extraterrestrial, which should become the company's biggest seller. Steven Spielberg, the director who made the top-grossing film, got involved in the production of the game and has produced a television commercial that will saturate the country by Christmas. It's the perfect Christmas game. 
the article goes on to say. <laughs> to fight with your family. Yes. I can't get out of the hole. Oh. Fuck this game. I'll kill you. Oh, such a horrible game. I had this. I never played it for more than three minutes. You'd start the game. You fall in the hole. You can't get the fuck out. You take the cartridge. You throw it across the room. That's my ET experience right there. You have to restart the whole system. Yep. The one thing I can say about the ET for Atari, the cartridges very well constructed. They didn't break that easy. So <laughs> I think I have a copy in the other room. Nice. All right. Let's toss it down to Dave Schultz for his verdict on the hot products round. Wowza. Um, okay. 1978 video dicks we got here. Um, <laughs> Disco never... vision. Disco vision. 1978. Uh, you, you know what? You did score some points with me because you hit the two notes I love so much, the whole currency exchange or the, the, the rate now compared to then and bringing up that it has or had legs. It got legs. Legs. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've never seen one. I am kind of amazed by it. Like when you told me it plays almost like a record. At first when you were describing it, I'm like, Do it, does it need a needle? <laughs> you know, but then when you explain the whole laser things, it laser, laser dicks, the laser dicks made more sense to it's me. A bunch of laser dicks pointing up. Now Mark has to keep that in the edit because we keep bringing it up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no getting rid of that now. Uh, let's see. 1990 Commander Keen. Yeah, buddy. Never fucking heard of it. Oh, it's one of the best games ever made. Well, <laughs> groundbreaking. So now we're looking at, right? So we're looking at one of the worst games ever made to your uh, self-professed. Groundbreaking. One of the groundbreaking, groundbreaking best games of all time. ID Software, of course. You mentioned all the other games that they have, which were very successful, uh, huge. And I've heard of those like when you talk about the Wolfenstein or Doom and things like that. Yeah, but, but so King. this was the first major platformer on a PC, right? PCs weren't, you know, if you're playing a game you're going to play a game on like the Nintendo or, you know, Genesis or some other, you know, like an actual really. video game system. Yeah, I, I have to disagree with you because I grew up with the Commodore 120. No, so did I. But everybody so we, that I taught, everybody that I knew at school, nobody had a fucking Commodore 64. Uh, nobody had it. I think it's, it's geographical. I think it depends on where you were because a lot of kids when like once 89, 90, yeah, maybe around that time people were getting Nintendo's and Game Boy's. But every time, like the years prior to that, everyone that I knew, they were playing games like we were playing Leisure Suit Larry and shit like that <laughs> on somebody's Lounge like, Lizards, buddy. IBM XT, you know, like their 8088. And uh, but when you said shareware, like I've heard of Commander Keen before. It, it's a pretty decent game. Uh, it's a phenomenal game. As a I wouldn't say it's uh, it's the best game, but it's shareware. The top and I think that, time, yeah. That's <laughs> the cool thing about shareware, though, and I think you didn't bring this up, but like they started as shareware and they blossomed out of that into their bigger games, which I think is a a big stepping point. So yeah. I think that that's a pretty big deal. OK, well, let's just between those two, before we even talk about E.T., let's do a taste test challenge here. I've got a box A, a box B. And someone says inside this box right here, we got Commander Keen. And inside of this other box, we got fucking Disco Vision. I like the way you say it. Yeah, that's, you got it. You got it. So I would, I would opt for Disco Vision before uh, anything called Commander Keen. But listen, I'm not huge uh, into video games. I've never been a big gamer uh, in this era that you guys are talking about. I did have an Atari, but before that, I had a ColecoVision. 
And I recently bought one of those little uh, Sega Genesis little mini things that has the games preloaded on it because I'm not as savvy as Drew. I can't build anything. I can't be doing all that. You, you just told me like you you took a what do you say like a Google TV box? It was a, it was a, yeah, it was an Android TV box. Android. There we go. Right, yeah. Android TV box, and you're building stuff. You're you're crazy. You probably put the first mechanical heart in a dentist back in 1982. You're Correct. a wild man. Uh, I am. I can't do all that, but but my kid doesn't mind it. He he enjoys it because he's only eight. But I I'm looking back at these games. I'm like they all kind of suck. I, I don't know. I just don't have a lot of like love for them. Now to talk about ET though, this is like stuff of legend. This is uh, unbelievable. Not only is it a movie tie-in, uh, Man Crush brought up the documentary, which I have seen. And it's just amazing how there was rumors about all these games being dumped into a landfill, but no one even knew if it was true. So it almost becomes like a Indiana Jones thing, right? We got to go see if we can unearth all these wasted copies of this crappy game. I had that game, and it screwed me up. This whole being, you know, dropped into the hole and never be able to get out. I couldn't even have sex because of that until I was 29 years old. I just kept thinking about that game. I was having flashbacks, sweating. It was terrible. <laughs> Somebody needs a laser dick. Yeah, I do. Uh, but anyway, that the whole ET thing, like I said, it, it was just like a. A massive part of like pop culture, you know. What I mean, it's it's something that I think maybe even someone's grandma knows about. Like, oh, is that that crappy game they said they threw away in the desert? Yeah, that's the one. And it also had really incredible art. It might have been an indestructible cartridge, but I love the art on it. It might have been like a Drew Struzan kind of like style thing or whatever. And now here I am waxing nostalgic about the worst fucking thing of all time. When I really just want to say, Mark with the ET cartridge comes out with the win. Wow. Hold on, hold on. I sent you a picture before you make mm. that that hasty decision. Hasty. <laughs> hasty decision. I just went on like fucking forever. Listen, the the Magnavision, Leonard mm. Nimoy with a mustache and <laughs> yeah. bell bottom pants looking like the good humor man was the spokesperson. Yeah. The Disco Vision. That's I, why they didn't disco last long. Vision. But it's probably because he didn't say it like that either. Uh, and they didn't put Disco Vision in this advertisement. It says Leonard Nimoy, and they even used it in like the Star Trek font. So there uh, demonstrates the Magnavision video disc player. And he's just standing next to one. It looks like it's free floating in air. Oh, I sent you another picture so you could see what it looks like with the uh, the top. Oh yeah, that's. Well, uh... well, 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 now I'm sending you a picture of Commander Keen. <laughs> please, I'm please. fucking getting in on this too. There you go. Holy cow, oh, dude! I totally, I totally remember that. Yeah. Well, Dave, I will not send you a picture of Atari because I don't want to trigger your PTSD <laughs> from that game. Well, that's that's good. I'm glad you didn't. Um, this is another caveat of having uh, somebody we know judge. We can actually send them shit. Yeah. When celebrities are on, they just got to take a word for it. Like, no, 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 just trust me. It's That's real. Well, the, the whole James Shelton thing, seeing that picture, I mean, you had already won the round. Don't get me wrong. But seeing that picture was like, wow, this guy fucking, he, he looks awesome. <laughs> I'm going to change my Facebook profile picture to that. You should. The problem with these pictures is it doesn't change my opinion on the Disco Vision or Commander Keen. So nice try, gentlemen. But E.T. is phoning home and winning this category. Commander Keen saved the damn world, and this is how you treat him. Send him a Christmas card. Thank you, Commander Keen. Leonard Nimoy with a mustache. I'll send Leonard Nimoy a Christmas card, too, okay? Just get off my back. Yeah, about that. Oh, shit. All right. So I have two points heading into the first two-point round. Uh, you know what, gentlemen? Uh, let's go over to the music round. 
All right, so release in December of 1982, I present to you Little Evil by Black Sabbath. Uh, you know, with Black Sabbath's publishing deal, it expired with their previous management. So songwriters, Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, they stood to make a great deal of money if they re-recorded some of the old Black Sabbath songs with new frontman Ronnie James Dio and released a live album. So that's exactly what they did. Not to mention, Ozzy had released a live album of old Black Sabbath songs just a month before. So actually, in his autobiography, Tony Iommi said that the band's live show during this period featured all kinds of pyro and bombs. And while once they were playing at the Hammersmith Odin, bombs had been so close it blew a two-foot hole in the stage right next to him. He said if he would have been there, it would have blowed him up. So, yeah, this live album kind of encapsulates what that whole tour and that whole era of Black Sabbath with Ronnie James Dio was all about. Uh, Little Evil peaked at number 37 on the Billboard chart, and it would actually be, this would be the first official live release from Black Sabbath. There was another live album put out in the Aussie years, but that was like a bootleg copy that wasn't an actual official release. Unfortunately, though, Sabbath would split up once again shortly after this album as Ronnie James Dio would set out on his own and he would uh, release Holy Diver in 1983. So it's a really good album. The standouts for me on this one are the Dio songs. You got Heaven and Hell. That's fantastic. But what I didn't care for was Ronnie James Dio's vocals on War Pigs. That's kind of a little odd. I don't know. That song was kind of written for Ozzy's range. So... Ronnie James Dio, much better single singer vocally, but you know, I just prefer the Ozzy on that one. But the rest of the album, fantastic. So go check it out. Little Evil by Black Sabbath, released as December. A, as a judge, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but as a judge, I demand a photo of Ronnie James Dio before I judge this <laughs> later. So. <laughs> All right. Drew Zachman, what do you got for the music round, man? Instead of a picture of Ronnie Dio, I just saw a picture of Commander Keen. I'm still, I'm still angry about that one. Good. Anyway, Dave. Dr. So, Schultz. Drew. <laughs> Disco Vision. Uh, so I'm talking about an album that came out on December 13th, 1990. Now, walking to the front door from my car, cutting an apple, tying my shoes, waiting to be judged by Dave Schultz. What do all these things have in common? They're going to make you sweat. And that is what I'm talking about. The album... From CNC Music Factory, Gonna Make You Sweat, which came out December 13th, 1990. This album was monstrous, to say the least. Uh, it hit number two on the Billboard 200. Uh, CNC Music Factory were very influential, actually. You know, the album itself is good. It's impressive. But when you look at their reach, I, I think that's even more impressive. But uh, CNC Music Factory, they... Uh, they actually still have 1.3 million monthly listeners on Spotify. Gonna Make You Sweat has been streamed over 93 million times on Spotify. There's some great tunes on there. You have, obviously, Gonna Make You Sweat. Hit number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Here we go. Let's rock and roll. This great tune with Freedom Williams hit number three. Things That Make You Go, hmm? Uh, Live Happy, that's good stuff. That's a quality dance, uh, dance song right there. All in all, it's a pretty good album. Now, if you don't know CNC Music Factory, CNC stands for Cole and Clavillis, which are David Cole and Robert Clavillis. They also produced Emotions and Make It Happen for Mariah Carey. 
uh, as well as producing hits for New Kids on the Block. And they also produced Whitney Houston's massive single, I'm Every Woman, in 1992. Now, uh, David Cole passed away on January 24th, 1995, due to complications from AIDS, as he was only 32 years old. So some trivia for you guys. That song, One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men, the song that spent 16 weeks on top of the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, becoming the longest running number one song in the charts history at that time, uh, a record that actually stood for 23 years. Yeah, that song was actually written about David Cole. So yeah, the guy the guy made an impact. Uh, the record was tied by Despacito, by Daddy Yankee, and then Lil Nas X broke it in 2019, spending 19 weeks on top with Old Town Road. So some more trivia for you guys which that actually should have given us a prelude to what a shit show 2020 would have become. Uh, but anyway, going to make you sweat was everywhere in the early nineties. Like I don't, you could not put on the radio or, or see the video on, on MTV. Like it was, it was everywhere. You were going to see it. You were going to listen to it. It was everywhere. Uh, also made an appearance in old school, which is a wonderful movie. And uh, also freedom Williams is the shit. So that's what I have. Going to make you sweat from CNC music factory, December 13th, 1990. And Dave, I'm going to send you a picture real quick of okay. CNC Music Factory. So please hold on. Yep. Actually, yeah, real quick here. Did you say you're walking to a car cutting an apple? No, no, no. There, there are different things. So uh-huh. let me. Uh, so walking to the front door from my car, uh-huh. comma, uh-huh. cutting an apple, comma. Like those are those are two separate things that make you sweat. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you were doing both activities. Like, you know, I need to exercise more. Is what I'm saying. How fucking out of shape are you? If you break a sweat cutting an apple, <laughs> he's got a bad elbow. It's humor, oh. Mark. I'm, 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 I'm making jokes. I have a bum shoulder. Dude passed out peeling wow. a carrot. <laughs> it's gonna make you sweat till you bleed, too. Jesus. <laughs> All right, man crush. What are you bringing for the music round? All right, let's go to December second. And 11th, 1978, like release wise, this is a tough month. I like, I'm sure there were selections from this month that people would like, but nothing that spoke to me. So I kept digging and I came across something extraordinary uh, that I wish I was old enough to see. Uh, This year was a tour that began in May of 1978 and it ended December 11th in New Mexico. And I'm not going to mask this pick up too much here. I promise. Aside from this being an amazing tour, this is important for multiple reasons, all right? So the tour here, and this is funny because you'll see why in a second. So the tour was the Never Say Die Tour, and it was headlined by Black Sabbath, the real Black Sabbath, as they were on tour <laughs> to support their 1978 eighth studio album, Never Say Die. Now, this is pretty historical for them because, as where Mark was going, on December 11th, 1978, you got Ozzy's final performance as the lead man of Black Sabbath since the band would fire Ozzy a few months after the tour concluded and they wouldn't convene again until late 1997 when they did the reunion tour. Now, I know they did rejoin in 92 when Ozzy did a quote unquote the retirement during No More Tears, but that was like a one off. Uh, so that right there, that's a huge deal since we'd have no real black Sabbath for nearly 20 years. And there's a possibility that if this didn't happen, we never get an amazing solo Aussie career. So you have that as well. Throw that in there. Second important thing here, the opening act coming off their debut album that was released in February. 
they had a single that was and the album they were just tearing up the charts but they were particularly with the single it was a uh, cover of the, the 1964 kinks song you really got me this was van halen's first ever world tour and by all accounts uh everything i've read they stole the show uh not that black sabbath was bad but from everything that I read about this tour, they just said Van Halen was incredible, like blew everybody away. People in the beginning were like, who are these guys? And they'd play one song like, what the fuck? Like insane. Even Black Sabbath, they said in the beginning, it was almost like they were like, damn, these guys are outplaying us. But I guess they, they had great camaraderie. And I'll get to that in a second during this whole tour. And speaking of great bands, the last two dates of this tour which I think was December 4th and 11th or something like that. The Ramones switched out and were the opener. Uh, so Van Halen's last one was on December 2nd. So I just get that there, but here's a great story. We're always looking for these great tour stories. We ask people from bands and they give us some vanilla story or they tell us that they're too busy and blah. blah. Okay. You got black Sabbath and Van Halen together in 1978. You're going to get a great story. And here's one. So one night, Ozzy and David Lee Roth made a bet on who could do the most blow. So right between the Cincinnati gig and the Nashville gig, these two guys, they decided who could do the most Coke before falling flat in their face. Regardless, they both made it to the airport. They both landed in Nashville. They both checked into their hotel rooms. Looked like everything was good to go, right? So the next day, Ozzy never makes it to sound check. No call, no nothing. No one knew where Ozzy was. So management, they got the police involved right away. There was a full-on fucking manhunt with the police in Nashville searching for Ozzy because the fear was that he was either kidnapped or dead. Here's a great quote from this manhunt. Uh, this was Lieutenant Sherman Nickens of the Nashville Police Department. And I quote on this one, and you'll find one part great in how clueless this guy was. Ozzy Osbourne may have been kidnapped or been the victim of some other form of foul play. Here's a man who makes lots of money, has never missed a show in 10 years. He doesn't drink or use dope. <laughs> he disappears and his people are frantic. So it's possible that something has happened to this man. That's his direct quote. So what happened to Ozzy? So Ozzy checks into his room at the Nashville Hyatt Regency. He gets his key for room 615. Somehow, Ozzy has in his pocket or a key for room 151 from the Birmingham Hyatt Regency that they played at previously. So what does Ozzy do? He rides up to the 15th floor where the maid had the door open. She was like making the bed or whatever. And he goes to room 1515, which is not even any of these keys. <laughs> He kicks the maid out, crashes on the bed, and doesn't wake up until 4 a.m. the day after the show. Holy shit. So in the process, the band had to cancel that night's show. Luckily, they played it again the night after. Uh, but there was, I guess there were like 12,000 people had lined up for refunds for this fucking thing because they thought he was dead. Uh, but yeah, never say die tour, baby. All right, Dave Schultz. Let's hear what you thought of the music round. Well, I, there's a that was a great story, Man Crush, but I need to know something that I think will really make your case in this round. Do you need a picture? No, no, I don't need a picture. <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt. 
But I want to know, all that coke that David Lee Roth and Ozzy Osbourne snorted in 1978, how much would that be worth in 2020? <laughs> a plethora. What's the street value of that stuff <laughs> right now? Just just think about that, though, for a second. Like, these are two guys synonymous with drug use. And the two of them made a deal, like a bet on who could do the most coke. Like, what the fuck? Uh. <laughs> Well, it's an amazing story of rock star excess, too, that they have that much coke where they could make that bet. Right. Yeah, you know what exactly. I mean? It's like we, we, we're just sitting on loads of cocaine. Let's just snort all of it so you can do more. It's pretty wild. <laughs> uh, 1990, CNC Music Factory. Influential. Make us sweat. I hate sweating. I really do. I'm not a big fan of sweating. I don't know anybody who is a big fan of sweating, but still- they, you know, Drew, you always come with the stats and the numbers and the Spotify listens. You're always so well prepared. I'm always amazed by it. I truly am. And that's a legitimate compliment to you, despite the fact I didn't understand your whole thing about apples and driving and being judged by me. But, you know, he's going to make you sweat till you bleed, making sweat till you bleed, peeling a carrot. 1982. You know, it's funny, too, because Man Crush kept reiterating the fact when he was bringing up his Black Sabbath story, he's like, the real Black Sabbath, the real one. So you just basically, like, disregard the whole Ronnie James Dio era. Yeah. But, I mean, it happened. It was legit. It ha Yeah, it happened. And you couldn't have picked two more uh, different styles of vocalists to be the front men of, of the same band. And Mark had pointed that out as well. You know, the range when you said War Pigs. Uh, basically, you can only imagine Ozzy Osbourne singing that song because Ronnie James Dio was hitting high notes, man. He's breaking glass. And he had better hair. <laughs> like Richard Simmons. <laughs> he did. It was glorious. It was amazing. You could hide so much cocaine in that hair. He looked like Richard Gene Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> the love child. Now, there's something that I, I loved, though, when Mark brought up his pick. And maybe no one else noticed it but me. When he, 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 most people would say when they're talking about pyrotechnics, that whole bit, uh, if he was there, it would have blown him up much like a, a child that was uh, probably playing video games against a middle-aged man on a video game game show. He said, blowed him up. If he was there, that would have blowed him up. <laughs> Which I was is, wondering if you'd catch that. Oh, I caught it, baby. <laughs> I sure as hell caught Ooh, it. Come in the box. You blow oh, him up, what? man. <laughs> Uh, guys, these were all really good picks. I got, I got to say, but I am really impressed uh, as someone who has done uh, out just unbelievable amounts of cocaine. That's why I can't speak right now by that entire story. And plus that lineup, imagine going to that show back in 1978 and saying, you know, not only did you see uh, Van Halen open, but you get to see, well, if you didn't go on that day where they did too much Coke, uh, but still, you know, the whole, the whole, I just love it. I love that those kind of stories of debauchery and just crazy drug use and stuff. It's just so Keith Moon. It's so disco vision. I can't get enough of it. I can listen to that stuff all day. So Man Crush, 1978, great year for, uh, I guess, rock and roll stars just freaking getting high as shit. I almost would have, like, I love Van Halen, but I'm a huge Ramones fan. And that initially, when I first found the ad, I found the one for... Black Sabbath with the Ramones, and I was like, ooh, what the fuck is this? Mm. And then as I got digging, and then I saw they did you know, most of the tour with Van Halen, which one would you rather have gone to? Van Halen. 
Yeah. 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 I think yeah. I'd agree with Drew. I yeah, think I'd rather see. I, Van I think Halen. for me, the the draw there would have been Van Halen, definitely. In 1978, though, like I, that that's my only thing because they were brand new. Like, yeah, it was something that you hadn't heard before. That sound in 78 was, I, was yeah, fresh. I, guess. I mean, I'm sure Eddie was fucking blowing people's minds, blowing them up, blowing them up. All right, Man Crush, you win that round. You take the lead three to two, heading into the movies round. All right. So uh, I just spoke a lot there. I'm going to defer. Let's go to Drew. I want to hear what 1990 had. Well, that's a bad choice on your part because I'm going to win this one. There you go. (laughs) All right. All right. Now, when when you're figuring out if you want to watch a movie, I feel like everybody has the same criteria, right? Does this movie have action? Uh, and and this movie that I'm talking about has action, so check there. Does this movie have comedy? Check. Does this movie have romance? Oh, yeah. Does this movie have a 90s mall? Yep. And does this movie have crackheads? Sure does. Now, kicking off the 90s was, you know, uh, this movie was based on actual events, which initially shook many viewers as they were not ready for that level of, you know, grittiness, especially with this movie being based on actual events. Now, the Pacific Northwest was dealing with a massive drug problem, and the police had a really hard time handling this this just epidemic. However, there was one cop who did everything in his power to keep those drugs off the street as he tracked down one of the most notorious drug dealers in all of Oregon and the entire West Coast. The cop was so dedicated to stopping this drug dealer that he went undercover as a kindergarten teacher to find this perpetrator. Now, were his methods a little barbaric? Sure, I mean, who brings a ferret into the classroom? But this cop would stop at nothing, and I mean nothing, to catch this horrible criminal who was poisoning the local community, even if that meant bagging the perpetrator's son's mom, who was also a teacher at that same school. Now, in case you guys don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the documentary called Kindergarten Cop, one of the best movies <laughs> ever made. Uh, I, I love this movie. It is It is fantastic. I actually visited... The elementary school, uh, the elementary school in Astoria, Oregon, John Jacob Astor Elementary School. It's actually right down the road from Mikey's house from the Goonies in Astoria. Pretty cool little town. I would highly recommend uh, if you're in the area, check it out. Um, but yeah, this movie had a budget of $15 million and made $202 million at the box office. Uh, Man Crush, what's that in 2020? A lot. Okay. Wait, what was, that? what was the number? $202 million at the box office. Oh man, that's it's not like four, about a four, half, ten, half a half a billion. There you go. Uh, it was the tenth highest grossing film of the of nineteen ninety, which is pretty impressive. You know, some wow. movies, some movies ahead of it were Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Dances with Wolves, Total Recall, Ghost, Pretty Woman, Home Alone, which is interesting, right? <clears throat> in those movies, like people were falling in love with like some random shit, right? You know, Kindergarten Cop. You had a teacher falling in love with a cop pretending to be a kindergarten teacher. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you had a reporter falling in love with a streetwise vigilante who runs around wearing a hockey mask and hangs out with fucking turtles. Uh, A Native American falls in love with Kevin Costner, who's like the whitest guy ever. Uh, Demi Moore was in love with a ghost. Now, granted, that ghost was Patrick Swayze, but still, it's a ghost nonetheless. Uh, And then Richard Gere found his true love with a hooker. So, 90s, man. Fucking love it. But yeah, Kindergarten Cop came out December 21st, 1990. This movie is infinitely quotable. I quote it at least once a day. I feel like this and Dumb and Dumber, I probably quote the most out of any movies ever. Both my seven and four-year-olds 
can quote lines, especially the one line where he tells Emma to take the toy back to the carpet. They they quote that line very well. Um, yeah, uh, honestly, if, you, if if people don't like this movie, I'm gonna, I don't even want to look at their fucking faces. This movie's amazing. Well, do you know earlier this year in Oregon there was a film festival where they were going to play Kindergarten Cop and they boycotted over that movie because of the whole defund the police and the toxic masculinity and all this other bullshit, which is fucking hilarious. It's Kindergarten Cop. Yeah. <laughs> The movie and it's funny because like, that movie is right. The people remember, you know, the 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 kindergarten teacher part. There's Arnold Schwarzenegger with a polo shirt and khakis, like fucking teaching these kindergartners and stuff. And it's cool. That's fine, you know. Hey, that's family friendly a little bit. But the beginning of the movie, it's like kind of dark. He's like, you know, yeah. busting into this like drug den, and then at the end of the movie, it gets dark again. So it's uh, I don't know if this is necessarily a family movie, but uh. I mean, it's it's a phenomenal movie for 1990. What? For it's, 1990, it's 1990. Yeah, I mean, I I watched Major League when that came out, and I was like nine. Thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> you called it a documentary. <laughs> do Do you guys remember those soundboards from like late 90s? Yeah. Dude, yeah, I yeah. my favorite was easily the Arnold Schwarzenegger one. It's like, who is your daddy, and what does he do? Like, the, there were so many of those lines that were so great. It's not a tumor. Oh yeah, uh, good pick. Kindergarten Cop. All right, gentlemen, so for my movies pick, we're going to go over to an article written by Vincent Camby in the New York Times News Service, December 26, 1982. In the way that great comic actors are supposed to play Hamlet, Jim Henson, who created the Muppets, and Frank Oz, his longtime associate, apparently have dreamed of creating some mechanical marvels more significant and timeless than the irrepressible Mrs. Piggy and her pals. The result is The Dark Crystal, which aims to be sort of a Muppets Paradise Lost, but ends up being a watered-down J.R.R. Tolkien. So, released December 17th, 1982, I give you The Dark Crystal. This was a huge movie for me growing up. Uh, Immediately, I was attracted to this film. It's a little dark, it's a little spooky, a little scary. It is fantastic. I, I grew up watching Fraggle Rock and The Muppets. So I was very familiar with the work of Jim Henson, and this was just a movie that absolutely captivated me. Now, the other reason I selected this is it's got legs, and lots of them. And the reason I'm going to tell you why it has legs is because if you're familiar with the story of the Dark Crystal, they're always talking about something called the Great Conjunction. Well, it's 2020, ladies and gentlemen. We're upon the Great Conjunction. Matter of fact, on December 21st, the planets will align yet again. Jupiter and Saturn will appear closer to each other than they have been in 800 years. So here on Earth, in the present day, we're going to have the real Great Conjunction. So like Olga said, the Great Conjunction, is it the end of the world or is it the beginning? All the same, big change, sometimes good, sometimes bad. That pretty much sums up 2020 for me. So that's why I'm picking The Dark Crystal. Released December 17th, 1982. All right, Man Crush. Can't wait to hear what you got for the movies round. (laughs) Okay, so let's go uh, December 10th, 1978. Uh, I watched this movie last week, and the version that I watched was about three hours and eight minutes or something absurd like that. And I said it on the show. I said it recently. I don't do well with long movies. And they got me thinking, even though I had this movie 
and the sequel on RCA discs growing up, there's a distinct possibility that I never actually watched this movie. Or it's been over 30 years since the last time I saw it. I'm honestly not sure, but it's not out of the realm of possibilities because long movies just don't digest well with me. I can't sit through them all. So I may have unceremoniously skipped this movie. I did recognize a lot of scenes, but maybe I saw those in clips along the way. Either way, I'm shocked. Uh, but I did make it all the way through this movie last week, even though I still think it was far too long. I did enjoy it. Uh, so at the box office, this one's for you, Dave. This movie absolutely killed it. It brought in $300 million. That's roughly $1.2 billion in 2020. So when you're thinking of these massive Marvel movies of today, that just it's just about on par with those numbers, at least way better than the DC movies. And that said, I would consider this the first real major big budget superhero movie of all time. Maybe somebody would throw the accolade maybe on like Batman, the movie from 1966. But let's be honest here. That doesn't even come close to this movie right here. Not in budget, not in box office totals, not in story, not in anything. And speaking of accolades, this movie uh, was nominated for three Oscars. You got best sound, best film editing and best music. And it won like I, I called this one a couple of weeks ago, the Oscar participation trophy, uh, which is something they love to give out in the 70s. For 1979 with the Special Achievement Award. So it did win that. Uh, this was the biggest film of 1978. Uh, just edged out uh, one of the Man Crush 3 alumni, Greece. Uh, beat that out that year. Uh, it's been preserved in the Library of Congress, the National Film Registry. For its time, it had the biggest budget ever at that point. It was $55 million. And this is crazy. $4 million plus a percentage of the movie went to Marlon Brando alone. So just think that was like close to $20 million that Marlon Brando got for this movie. Not, and which is not bad for a dude that's notoriously lazy. Every story I've read about this guy from this movie series, everyone was like, dude, he was reading off cue cards, writing on baby's diapers, doing all kinds of crazy shit. Just lazy as fuck, but he got paid bank probably more than anybody. But the names that they considered for the main role of this movie, initially Robert Redford, uh, who wanted too much money and they were giving all their money to Brando. So that's out. Uh, Clint Eastwood, who was too busy with other movies. And then finally, James Kahn, who said he wouldn't wear the silly suit. Uh, so when it was all said and done, they got this little known actor at the time named Christopher Reeve to play the role of Superman, uh, which is a guy initially the producers felt was too young and skinny for the role, which is pretty hilarious because like James Conn looks like a small dude and God, that movie would have sucked ass with James Conn in the role of Superman. <laughs> Agreed. Like it's just ter like what the f who? Why? I love James Conn, but in this role, no fucking way. Uh, anyway, not too much to sell with this one. Everyone knows it's fucking Superman. Oh, that's what it is. All right. Yeah. yeah. September 10th, 1978. James Conn is not tall at all, I don't think, right? No, he's a small well, I think, guy. I don't even think his he's His son's months. shorter, which is why I think I'm picturing him as super short, but I still don't think he's big. Now, see, if they want to bring James Conn on to play Lex, I'm all for that. Yeah, that not would work. Not Superman, though. Dude, there's all kinds of crazy stories about like what people... like. Gene Hackman was a pretty big actor at the time who played Lex Luthor. He wouldn't shave his mustache. 
he wouldn't like shit. He wouldn't go bald. So they had to like fake the whole wig thing in the movie and have wigs around and just keep changing his hairstyles because he wouldn't do it. I think he eventually shaved his mustache because uh, Richard Donner told him that he was going to shave his mustache if he did it. Now, Richard Donner never had a mustache, but I guess uh, he didn't know that. So, (laughs) All right, Dave Schultz, what is your final verdict on this game? Okie dokie, I should give the round to Mark because I just looked at my phone and he did in fact send me a picture of Ronnie James Dio. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like the best photo of all time. He was like pointing at me, which was incredibly awesome. But no, I'm not going to give you the round, Mark, because uh, Dark Crystal scared me. I didn't like it as a kid at all. It it freaked me the fuck out. And I love Jim Henson, Frank Oz. I mean, the Muppets are fantastic. Uh, Labyrinth, another great movie they worked on. Uh, I could go on and on about the brilliance of Jim Henson, but uh, Dark Crystal, even uh, they did a, uh, was it like a sequel on yeah. Netflix? Yep. I couldn't, I couldn't even look at that. Just too many childhood nightmares were pouring in by those creepy ass figures they came up with. I mean, listen, Mark, it's a great pick, just not for me. 1990, Kindergarten Cop. Uh, Drew, I think it's amazing that you went on a trip to visit that school. When you think about like the the trips to Mecca that people could make, it'd usually be like Shermer, Illinois or something to see like where all the John Hughes movies are based out of or, or what have you. Uh, Penelope Ann Miller was in that movie. Correct. Who did not have a crush on Penelope Ann Miller in the 90s or even now. I mean, seriously, super haughty. No wonder why Arnold couldn't keep his massive meat paws off of her. You did bring up. The Goonies, when you're talking about your trip, how the yeah. house was next to there. Yeah. I just recently watched Goonies with my kid the other day, and I wish I didn't. Why? Be- because I had so many like good nostalgic feelings about it, but then oh. when I watched the movie, it was just like a, a complete clusterfuck. And now, anybody with young children may understand this. It's tough, especially, like I said, mine is eight. He knows there's bad words. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've mastered this technique of leaving the subtitles on when we watch something so I can cough when they swear. But I mean, I was even watching Goonies. I'm like, there was no need to keep dropping the the swears in there. It just wasn't, you know, and it wasn't really age appropriate either, which is funny for me to say because I was watching crazy stuff. I could have been watching porno with your dad at that age because, I mean, I was getting away with murder (laughs) with what I was watching. You know what I mean? Yeah. And look how you turned out. Yeah. I'm a judge on dueling decades. (laughs) life does not get any better than this come on now but still that movie kindergarten cop it's one where i wanted to watch it with my kid and i haven't yet because i'm afraid i'm afraid of the content like give it two more years two more years you think okay thank you for the little advance warning or you know just fast forward the beginning and then once he gets to astoria elementary school then you, you can start it there yeah sure there you go he's like daddy what's a drug dealer i'll have to explain that one bringing the birds and the bees to go along with it. 1978, Superman. You know, with all the accolades, Man Crush, you were bringing up, I could have swore that you were talking about Condor Man. So the fact it was Superman, I I wouldn't have guessed it was that, you know, loved of a film. I mean, come on. Superman, who the hell seen that? Who? Such an obscure comics character. Yeah, it's like an indie flick. Yeah. It only took them like six years to put this together. Yeah, it's one of those amazing feats to where they, I think the tagline too was like, you'll believe a man can fly. 
And I know I did. No, I swear to God, like that was their thing. And it was amazing. Even even the effects, like uh, I guess to reference watching movies with my kid again, he'll watch stuff now. And he's like, oh, this is crap. How could you watch this when you were a kid? I'm like, dude, you have no idea. This was the most amazing thing ever when it was out. Yeah, but it was a remake, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking remakes. There's a scene where in that movie where Clark is talking to Lois Lane and, oh, no, it's Superman. I'm sorry. Superman's talking to Lois Lane. He flies off. We, you follow Lois Lane as she walks through her apartment. There's a knock on the door, and it's Clark Kent. That was all one shot. That that was amazing how they, I mean, just cinematically how that movie was produced, and Man Crush brought up all the stories and what have you. It's it's legendary stuff. Uh, I would dare to say even more legendary than Mark's pick of the E.T. cartridge. So really here... And I know, Man Crush, amazingly, you did not bring up any wrestling whatsoever this episode, which is great. I did that I know to appeal to me. And your last pick, your big humdinger, was a superhero. And you know how much I love comic books. But still, Kindergarten Cop and Superman, that's what we're boiling down to here. Kindergarten Cop is ultimately quotable, as Drew had mentioned, by the soundboards. I mean, come on now. Uh, But Superman, oh boy. The merchandising, everything involved with that movie, uh, getting people into that character who weren't who w- weren't into Superman, uh, just making fans worldwide. The stunning career of the uh, dearly departed Christopher Reeves, just uh, unbelievable stuff. And Ned Beatty was in it. We often forget about Ned Beatty, who later played yep. Lotso Hug and Bear in Toy Story Three, and I also know that because I'm a dad. So Superman, nineteen seventy eight. The movie to end all movies and win Man Crush this episode of Dueling Decades. Man, that was I was on a slide too. I had won all those and then I lost like three in a row. So yeah. that, that feels good. Let me ask you a question though. There's a lot of talk. I hear this all the time with people. Uh what do you like better? The original or the second? Okay. I I I the Brandon Ralph Superman, I liked him. Oh no, no, no. I'm not talking about that. I mean Sim- the first two Richard, so just so people know, so they filmed uh-huh. these basically like one and two at the same right. time, right? Uh, Richard Donner did both, mm-hmm. but they didn't end up right. keeping Richard Donner's. They, they went a different Correct. direction. They used, uh, was it Lester or whatever it was? I forget. Um, but I've seen both cuts. But I think growing up, I always watched the second one way more. And I think that's why I remembered that over the original when I watched this one, I, cause I'm, I'm almost positive. I watched it. Just didn't remember a lot of the scenes and I probably didn't watch the three hour and eight minute version of it. Yeah. I can see the appeal to, of the second one there to maybe to younger viewers because of the villains involved. Yeah. They were uh, I mean, general Zod and everything, but I, I, the first one to me is a better picture. I mean, it, it gives you a great story. Now when they released it, this is the one thing that I couldn't come away with it. And that's why I didn't say it on the episode. I doubt it was a three hour and eight minute release. It must've been much shorter. That's probably the TV cut is what they're putting together now. So maybe that's why I didn't recognize a lot of those scenes, especially like the young scenes where he's growing Mm -hmm. up and he kicks the football and all that. I totally didn't remember any of that. But then the scene that you just talked about where, you know, he takes Lois on the trip and then she's supposed to be on the date with Clark Kent. And then she comes back and Clark's at the door I remember that shit, but I didn't remember all that that early on stuff. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, it's the origin story. 
the original origin story, 1978. Fuck yeah! <laughs> well, I mean, they had uh, to speak to your archives pick earlier. There was, uh, you know, other Superman uh, stuff way before then in black and white and right. Uh, George Reeves and all that stuff. I know they made a movie. I think Ben Affleck played him or what have you. So it wasn't like the OG Superman, but I mean, come on. This, that <laughs> that 1978 Superman picture was just massive. It was huge. So was Kindergarten Cop. All right. So once again, Man Crush, you proved to be dueling decades, Man of Steel, and you pull out another victory. It's all luck. It's all in the years. <laughs> it's all in the years. Well, I'd like to thank Drew Zachman, and Dave Schultz for uh, helping us out on this episode. Make sure you go over to songsgonewrong.com. Check out their new show. It is absolutely fantastic. Before we go, if you know James Shelton and that story, this is like an episode, like somebody put on a, a Robert Stack voice here. If you know James Shelton, please contact the show. James Shelton, possibly from Illinois, possibly from Davenport, Iowa, possibly from hollywood let us know because we want to get him on the show <laughs> to tell us this whole story he can uh he can relinquish his story that he maybe has wrote a comedy about and he could judge an episode the dueling decades milk carton edition right here <laughs> have you seen me <laughs> i should put his picture out yeah <laughs> all right duelers well if you've missed an episode you can always head over to DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Spotify, really everywhere podcasts are available. And then while you're on those interwebs, head on over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades where you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Podcast New York. Be heard. Be heard.